0: Hello, and welcome to Biopod, the official podcast for the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Severina, and I'm happy to introduce today's episode, where Anna Motilova chats with Andrea Paterlini about his work here at the university, what plant science subject he studies, and what education means to him. Now, over to you, Anna.
1: Hi Andrea, thank you for coming on the BioPod. So you are a lecturer in genetics education and also a researcher within the Institute of Molecular Plant Sciences. Would you just like to give us a short intro about what you lecture about and what you research at the university?
2: Absolutely. And thank you very much for the invite. It's really a pleasure to talk uh, today. So I'm a teaching focused lecturer. So I spend most of my time designing and delivering course content for, for undergraduates. My current main engagement is a course organizing a new second year course called uh, called Bio2B, Genetics and Evolution. So this is part of the new biology curriculum that has been recently redeveloped. And we're really doing, I think, some cool stuff with the course. So hopefully we get a chance to talk a little bit about that. And when I'm not teaching, then I do a little bit of research and my area of interest is um, plant biology to start, but specifically plasmodesmata. So these are small pores connecting in neighboring plant cells and these spores are really really important for plant development and also to ensure the robustness of plant growth um, against uh, different types of stresses. So I'm quite excited that I'm going to have an honor student next semester. We're going to work together on a couple of aspects related to plasmodesmata, desmata and it's just a little bit a different way of doing science in a way. It's a little bit slower compared to having a permanent group but I feel that it really suits me because it, it puts me in close contact with undergraduate students, which is what I enjoy.
1: Great, that sounds really exciting. What would you say is the proportion of lecturing and research? How, how is your sort of day-to-day split? between Ooh, the two?
2: It's tricky. I, I feel every day is slightly different. We could go back to my contract and see exactly what the percentage is. Probably sort of something sort of 60 on the teaching, something like that. But I think it depends. There are times where we were redeveloping this new course, so we're really busy with that. And I should say, you know, I'm I'm the course organizer, but we have a fantastic team behind this new course. Uh, It's not just myself. We wouldn't be able to run it without fantastic input from all members involved. So yeah, I think every day is a little bit different. Sometimes you have to deal with some challenges from the teaching or deal with some challenges from the research. But my main focus, i say, is, is on the teaching. So then you just have to be a little bit creative in uh, squeezing the research in the rest of the time.
1: Yeah, so was it always like this? Were you always interested in the teaching side of science more than the actual research? Or was there a particular point in your career where that changed?
2: Well, I, th- I think maybe viewing it as an either or is not the best way of sort of doing it. I'd say that during my PhD, I really got passionate about outreach and teaching. So that was really sort of the starting point for that. And I've always had a little bit this view that personally I feel I can have a much bigger impact for science by helping and supporting the future generation of scientists, maybe the plant scientists or in any other discipline, then maybe the impact I would have been able to have just by doing research full-time on my own. So it's kind of nice to have this, this view that you're still contributing to research, and a number of other sort of fields because not everybody's going to go into research and that's absolutely fine and actually that's what we need. You're having impact in different ways. So I've enjoyed my time as a full-time researcher as I've done it um, during my PhD, during a postdoc, but then beyond that I sort of started transitioning to to teaching focus post. For a bit I worked for the Gatsby Plant Science uh, Foundation, so we were promoting plant science education across the UK and then I started lecturing in Sheffield and now I'm here in Edinburgh
1: was there a specific teacher or a lecturer or a mentor that you've had maybe during your phd or even your undergraduate degree that had a big impact on your life and that maybe inspired you to teach yourself
2: yeah i, I think it is maybe perhaps even a little bit broader than just teaching alone so very grateful one of my phd advisor was Ottolin leiser and anything Ottolin definitely instilled some key ideas in my mind so this idea that science is done by teams not by a lone genius in a corner so it's really like a collective endeavor and i hope you know i think that you can see that in a course design in any aspect of sort of uh, both in teaching and direct science so that i think was really important another thing Otlin really stressed and we might sort of get to that later in the conversation is really the central importance of edi and having a diverse and supportive community doing science
1: agree with all of that (laughs) maybe we can move to the actual topic of science education itself then what do you think are the most common pitfalls that science educators often fall into when trying to convey these you know quite complex concepts be it either lecturers or in a different setting
2: i mean one thing that i'm quite passionate about and i feel it's some something that maybe not everybody does and that can generate a little bit of a detachment between the students and the subject, is kind of portraying science a little bit in a vacuum. As if, you know, science is this thing and it's separate from what we do every day. Instead, it's really like you need to link biology to society and the world around us. And that's, I think, or what I hope really inspires the students then to be interested in that. In our course, just to give a a small example, we really use genetics and evolutions as tool to kind of discuss the the past atrocities caused by eugenics and also the sort of lingering remains of that because we still have some aspects today or the problem of genetic determinism or or on a slightly more practical basis, if you want, like uh, interpreting genetic tests, which is a very common thing. You might get it in your your Christmas stocking. These days were very, very cheap. But being able to correctly interpret those results is really key. So really having a little bit of those applications to to the world around us, I'm a a firm believer of, of a socially critical curriculum that really helps students understand society and it's not just big information dump for them.
1: For sure. Would you like to tell us, so that we have more background on what you do as an educator at the university, about the course that you helped organize
2: Yes, this is a new course and it's kind of I don't want to say a merge but it's sort of picking flavors from two courses that used to exist. So one was focused on evolution and one was focused on genetics. Now sort of viewing the two as separate is an incorrect way of doing things because they are very deeply interlinked. Like to understand evolution, we need to have an understanding of genetics and the other way around. So I think it was a very nice idea to try to bring the two disciplines together in this new course that is called genetics and evolution. So we start from, if you want the building blocks, so from the DNA, DNA replication and the more molecular aspects and then we keep building we move to interaction between genes and then scales up and up we get to sort of species communities and we get to to the core principle of evolution uh, with the impact of selection as well so hopefully you know it's a nice Overview of a lot of processes, but we really stress how they're interlinked and they feed into each other And then we have some practicals and we managed to squeeze in a a planned practical that I'm very happy with So it's kind of close to home and then we've got some workshops where the students deal with data and uh, small problems Trying to kind of extracting an answer from a a set of data, which I think is a good transferable skill
1: So is this a course that's completely made from nothing or was it sort of merging of two courses
2: well it was (laughs) so uh, i'm a recent hire so i started in march and uh, we pretty much built the entire course from march to september so again that's why i want to stress credit goes to the entire team my deputy course organizer jabron like and, and all the other people involved because it wouldn't have been possible otherwise when i joined we sort of had roughly the titles of the lecture in terms of what topics we wanted to cover, but that was about it. And then we built everything else from that. So we sort of had a bit of an idea of what we wanted to cover because this course being a second year course is really important for a number of third year courses. So we wanted to ensure that when the students finish this course, they were well prepared for their specific honors program in, in the third and fourth year. We've covered a fair, fair amount of ground.
1: Is this the first course that you helped organize? From scratch?
2: Yes. Um, I have some experience of being a course organizer when I was working in Sheffield but in that case there wasn't so much rebuilding. it was kind of tweaking things and just uh, ensuring that the, the beast kept running uh, okay but this was it was really nice because we could really sort of shape the course. As we thought should have been, so with the element of the socially critical curriculum and a number of other aspects in terms of assessment, having genuine assessment that is testing the students for skills we want them to have outside, especially transferable skills is something that we really thought was valuable. So to to give again a very rather simple example, we asked them um, to write some abstracts to summarize the practicals. And really, the idea of the abstract is being able to write in a succinct and concise way, which is very relevant for science, but is also broadly applicable. So again, having that genuine assessment is an
1: important thing. So you mentioned you used the idea of transferable skills and also a socially aware science. I'm quite interested in how you did that, how you integrated... A social awareness into a course about genetics and evolution?
2: Well, I think so many of the themes. Have have direct implication, you know. Genetics underpins health, underpins evolutions. Um, you know, again, going back to that example of eugenics, there was this distorted view that any human characteristic, whether it was physical or in terms of behavior, could be related to to genetics. Now, we for sure know that that's not the case. Uh, there's a lot more complexity. One needs to consider the role of the environment, which is an underlying principle of complex traits, which is the vast majority of the traits we see in nature and I've been reading around it a a fair bit while preparing the course and there's a decent amount of research that really shows that when we sort of teach genetics going from Mendelian genetics, like simple genetics that is lovely, nice and neat and has been definitely fundamental for our understanding of genetics, don't get me wrong, but it really gives students and people in general a mistaken impression of the complexity of life. We enter that sort of problematic determinism of thinking, you know, one gene, one trait, like, or if you have one genetic variant, you will for sure develop a specific condition or, or phenotype. And that's really problematic because genetic determinism then sort of enters a concept like race, which is not a biological concept. This is really important to stress. There's still a little bit of confusion around that. It might be a social construct, but it's certainly not a biological construct. And I would argue it's maybe not a concept that should exist altogether, but that, that enters a little bit the personal, shall we say. So, yeah, we really kind of wanted to have a balanced overview of like genetics, stressing the importance of complex genetics, stressing the importance of interpreting things correctly and not overreaching in, in either direction.
1: Yeah, that's very important. I think, especially the idea that race is a biological concept, still, so many people believe that it's quite striking.
2: I know, I know, and, but it, it sort of offers nice links to, you know, you know Black Lives Matters, you know, a, a bit of time has passed, but the, the issue is still absolutely relevant. So, you know, you can then link those things in the lectures and that hopefully also makes the diverse students that we have in the university feel seen and, you know, respected and included. So but there's lots of things that we've tried to do in kind of the course, sort of showcasing that it's a safe and inclusive space for everybody, like using, you know, from something as simple as pronouns on the slides or kind of um, stressing a number of different approaches. So we hope that that has been picked up and maybe appreciated in a way. And the other aspect, you know, so we were talking about transferable skills. We really need to have a bit of an optic of we're preparing students for the jobs of the future and the jobs of the future might not be yet present. So to future-proof there, you kind of really need to stress those transferable skills so that whatever type of jobs might pop up, there might be a subset of the skills you have developed as a result of doing undergrad that you can then translate into that job. A university degree is not just about knowing the specifics of uh, epistasis or other complex genetic concept is about how those students, when they're done with their degree, they can be sort of the leaders of tomorrow and they'll be able to interpret and operate in future society to the best interest of everyone. So another big thing that we stress in our course And we do that link to genetics because that's sort of our remit, but it's really the social responsibility. If you study genetics in the future, you might be in a position where you have to make some important and specific decisions. So you really need to have that understanding that those decisions might matter and you've got a responsibility because we hope you have the understanding of uh, those genetic principles. So those are some of the guiding principles that myself and all the staff involved kind of shared.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. For me as an undergrad student at this university, I would say the most important transferable skill that I took away from my science degree was definitely communication of science. And well, from the point of an undergrad, it was you know, asking questions and um, developing presentations. I don't really remember, you know, everything I learned, every biological concept I learned in my first year, interestingly.
2: (laughs) And that's absolutely fine because, you know, uh, there are moments where I have to, I mean, I don't know, we don't want to do product placement, but I have to Google things like as well. And we all do it because there's only so much sort of concept that you can store in your brain and really, the purpose of an educator is not about filling the brain of students with concept that's really like a far surpassed view. It's about guiding or supporting students in their own educational journey. And actually, I have to say that students do struggle, some some at least students do struggle with this idea because they often translate the school model into a university setting, which is not really the way it should be. It shouldn't be a sort of tech, tick box checking exercise of assignments and exam. Uh, I have a big problem with the overemphasis on on sort of grades. Grades are an imperfect way that we need to use to kind of condense in a metric your engagement but I, I think there are lots of problems with that. It's just a necessity more than a choice shall we say and I really want students to kind of explore what they're passionate about during their degree rather than being obsessed about a particular assignment. A particular assignment is just, we think there's a value in that assignment and hopefully we ask you to develop particular skills in association with that. But you should really enjoy your um, your university career because it's a time where you can study what you like and hopefully what you're passionate about. So I I think it's it's a valuable moment in your life.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was never really motivated by grades very much. I always wanted to, you know, talk to the lecturers, uh, learn firsthand. I thought it was a very exciting opportunity to just be surrounded by so many intelligent and passionate and driven people.
2: Curious, I would add curious, maybe that's the the best adjective, like curious is really, we're all curious about something, we're passionate about that, and we're super happy to sort of chat about it. And there are lots of unknowns, so we're still curious for a reason, because science, you know, would be out of a job if everything had been explained in science and biology, so curious, I think, is a key one there.
1: Yeah, no, that's a fair addition, for sure. I noticed this trend among my classmates, though, that, yes, we are here to learn and explore for ourselves, it's just that I don't think I know anyone who hasn't been overwhelmed at some point by by university and, and the sheer, you know, volume and, and pressure. And it's just a little bit difficult to get into that zone of just curiosity and learning for yourself when you are, you know, so, so worried about just, just passing and grades because that's ultimately how your performance here is assessed
2: absolutely and I think now uh, it's getting even more complicated because uh, we need to take into account you know the, the the cost of living crisis so more and more students need to have a part-time job like uh, to, to make ends meet and I think, we are, I, I can openly say, we are guilty of maybe not really thinking about that in our own course. It was definitely a busy course and I think in the, this was the first year we run in the second iteration we'll probably adjust a little bit, because originally university wasn't necessarily designed with this idea in mind that you know obviously students would have their social engage- engagement by all means that's sort of uh, that, that's natural but the element where a number of students would be really really busy also with part-time jobs i think we need to start adjusting more and more our educational model to take that into account so that it's not an excessive strain and an unfair disadvantage for those people so we're not there yet and and uh, i'll make a personal mea yeah, make- culpa cool, as well i think we, we are Working towards that, and we need to be more and more strategic uh, in our approaches so that it's an equitable, like, uh, field for everybody and nobody's disadvantaged.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a very fresh viewpoint, I think. I don't think that it's a very popular thing, it's not certainly something that the university is, you know, marketing.
2: No, and again, I, had, uh, I should probably stress here. I'm speaking in in, in a personal capacity as well. And um, I I think change, and you know, we've we've been through so many changes. If we think back to sort of the COVID periods that really required a complete flip of the of the teaching model and moving to recording. We've learned a few things from that process. We've I, I would hope that we've kept. The good things about that and we've reverted on some aspects that maybe weren't so helpful or, you know, they were no longer fit for purpose um, due to the change in situation. But I think, you know, education, just like science, is a, is an evolving topic. And that's why spending time kind of reading about educational papers and having a little bit of that um, formal training as, as I've gone through really has helped because you, you allocate time to reflect on your own practice. So um, I've been doing, and I'm still doing, um, I always get the acronym wrong, a postgraduate certificate in teaching for learning in higher education. And this has been really, really helpful because I had time to reflect on my practice, explore new approaches and really focus on the best strategy, best educational strategies that could work in different settings. Um, So, you know, it, it's really important for lecturers and also for interested researchers, but also for um, demonstrators that might be just PhD students to kind of engage um, with a little bit of training. Uh, the um, Higher Education Academy offers different types of fellowships linked to that. You could be an associate fellow, I'm a fellow, and then there are more, more senior roles. So I think training is really a, cert, um, a central aspect for educational professionals.
1: You mentioned in one of your talks that you feel like you need to do you need to learn a lot of teaching just by doing it so you've learned a lot by doing and you've also done this formal training so how would you think that the training changed the way that you teach what was the the biggest lessons that you took away
2: well i think there's a lot Making explicit some things, you know, you might think that something sort of works, but a little bit by intuition based on that kind of practice that you might have accumulated over the years. But you might not really know what's the, the psychological, the the educational aspect behind that. And I think reading the literature and kind of doing that training really helps you scaffold those intuition, if you want, uh, from experience. And I'm sure that uh, more senior colleagues have a lot of, of, of that experience and they know what works or what doesn't work. Um, Based on that, just by a cumulative kind of experience, but it's really nice to be able to link that experience with why we're doing something and what's really the root of that. And ultimately, sometimes even, even if you think that it's a great approach and there's a lot of educational background based on that, it might just not work to the specific setting we're dealing with. That's why you know um, when we designed this course, we had some ideas. We have enacted them, and um, we you know we did them for specific purposes. But again, after running that for one year, we already know that we need to tweak a couple of things because in the specific setting uh, with the specific kind of court, that maybe didn't work as well as we would have liked. So we'll try to sort of change that, and it's. As I said, it's a continuous process. you kind of respond there's an important element of kind of responding to the feedback, whether it's um you know oral uh, written or just you know impressions that you get from running the course is really kind of responding to that and adjusting.
1: Yeah, we haven't really spoken that much about the teaching plant sciences specifically, and then also the equality, diversity, and inclusion topic that we wanted to get to later so maybe just starting with plant science and how you effectively teach plant science. So from my observation as an undergrad, again, the honors group for plant science is often the smallest one year by year. Um, I've I've thought about this, but I'm not sure. Why do you think that is? Well, I think...
2: I want to I wanna start a little bit farther away in a way. So I, I think it's important to distinguish between two goals. So one goal is ensuring that many students and the general public uh, as well for that matter gain an appreciation for plants and plant science. So that's one goal. The second goal is to get more plant scientists like uh, so, and that would be recruiting more students for example for that specific honor. Um, both are absolutely central um, to what we care about and what we do. Uh, personally, the first one is a little bit more relevant to me, especially because I tend to teach in, in, the, in the first part of the degree. So first and second years. So that's where you know, you've know you got more students and might go in very different directions. So um, for as much as I, might, I hope that I can convert everybody to become a plant scientist, I don't think that should be the goal. Uh, not really the intention, but if I can really instill a little bit of an appreciation and and understanding for the relevance of plants, that's really valuable. So, um, in in the course, we really stress that plants are a great model to study a range of biological processes. In some cases, they're even the best model to study them. Like you know, a number of um, epigenetic aspects were first discovered in plants. Um, the the scientists didn't really get the credit for that. It's a bit of a joke in the plant science field. Where they they stole a, <laughs> a, classic a, a Nobel scientists. Prize. Yeah. yeah, but you know, I you know, I I think it's okay. The the, the idea is really that we want. To close a little bit the gap in um, in plant awareness, so plants really suffer from this lack of lack of awareness. If you see a picture and there's some uh, I don't know cute goats uh, uh, in the <laughs> foreground, and then there are some super exciting rare species in the background, no, well, the vast majority of people will not pick up on on the rare plant species. Rather, they'll just focus on the cute goats. Uh, which maybe is a slightly oxymoron, I'm not sure how cute (laughs) it goes, that's a debatable one, but alas. Um, So you know, I think part of the problem linked to maybe plant science education is how plants are maybe covered in secondary but also in tertiary education and that's where as educators we can kind of do something, I mean most students in the UK and I would say also abroad as well, the first topic they encounter when it comes to plants is photosynthesis. And now, while photosynthesis is absolutely fundamental for for earth, or for an, a number of contexts, it's maybe not the most curious or really kind of exciting topic. So maybe there's something to be said about balancing a little bit the curriculum. We definitely want to teach photosynthesis, it's really important but then throwing in something else, something that is very curious that only plants do, or something that both plants and animals do, but in slightly different ways. And um, this is something that I did for um, when I was redeveloping a little bit of a course while I was in Sheffield. They really had sort of, uh, it was about biochemical signaling, so exploring different, uh, different types of signaling. And the plant science was really restricted to two lectures at the end of the entire course. Now, you can imagine that that creates a number of problems. Uh, if you've been to all the other lectures and um, you're not very kind to plants, you might just decide that you're going to skip that because if you, you, know, you had your bets, there might only be one question, and if not all questions are compulsory, you, you would be fine without doing I that. I mean, it,
1: it comes from that approach that the lecturers also seem to have to the topic. For me, if you know I see a course and plants are 2% of it, then I think, oh, maybe... Even the academic community don't see plant science as very important. So why should I?
2: Absolutely. I think that's the other aspect. One, you know, is the maybe logistical one of attendance. But the other one is, what are you telling students about plants? They're just this separate thing. They're, okay, all right, we're, we're going to cover it uh, at the end. But it almost seems like that it's a chore rather than, you know, a joy.
1: Yeah, I mean, from school, I remember photosynthesis was... I I spent hours and hours of studying that, and I still can't couldn't tell you how exactly it goes. <laughs> and it seems like yeah, the 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 main thing that was to say about plants, which probably isn't true. I mean, plants are amazing. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's so much more plants. You know, we extract so many drugs from plants. We've got some fantastic biology. I'm thinking about carnivorous plants. You know, there's so much cool stuff out there. You know, plants have hormones and, um, you know, we view them as very static because, well, they cannot walk and, and go somewhere else. But actually, precisely for their reasons, they can so carefully respond to a number of different signals and environmental cues. So one could argue that they're perhaps even slightly smarter than us, but you know, okay, this is <laughs> this is maybe pushing the boat a little bit out, but, you know, going back to kind of the, the course design. I'm a big fan of the comparing contrast as, as a kind of framework to use in a course. So rather than having those two plant lectures at the end, you start peppering in some plants in every single lecture. So when you talk about uh, well kinases, which are one of the signaling modules, you kind of show sure this is how animals do it, and then this is how plants do it. And there are some similarities, but also some exquisite like quirkiness in, in how plants deal with signaling. Um, you know, this is specifically true for G-coupled receptors and, and other things. So you really ask the students to kind of see that evolution have found different ways for the same problem, which is, in broad terms, kind of signaling and, and then you can sort of stress the specific biology that has sort of steered evolution maybe in different direction because it was more more amenable uh, for the organism. So yeah, I, th- I think there's a there's really... The, the core message is trying to have plants embedded in the curriculum, uh, not a special uh, guest at the end of something, but really we've tried to embed as many plant examples. In parallel to animals, it's not that we're sort of discriminating in the, in the other direction, but just normalizing uh, plant presence uh, in all sorts of courses. And sometimes it's easier for me because I'm a plant scientist and I'm willing to learn about the animal examples. Uh, Sometimes um, other lecturers might feel less comfortable approaching sort of plant example and I think here we need to do a little bit of a a community effort or a team effort we're very welcome to support people that want to include a plant example. Yes there's something to be said about workloads and you know we're all kind of uh, time is is a precious commodity but I'd say I'd be more than happy to support somebody in sort of diversifying a little bit their example in their course.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a shame that the Institute of Molecular Plant Sciences is a separate institute, and then you have the Institute of Evolution and Ecology at this university. Um, I mean, there's plenty of evolution and ecology happening in plant sciences, so... Yeah, I mean,
2: I'd say th- there are different arguments. Um, I don't think that is a problem, uh, because there's something to be said about also having a cohesive identity. Um, And I think it's really nice to have uh, a plant science institute. Also in reference to the fact that there are not that many degrees left in the UK that teach plant science or botany as a specific uh, honours programme. So sometimes in this big merge, and a number of different departments across the UK have done that, uh, I know quite a few of them, uh, sometimes if you are a slightly smaller community to start with, you really risk um, getting diluted and lost a little bit in the process. So I'm I'm a strong uh, believer that actually the Institute of Molecular Plant Science having one here in Edinburgh is really important. And it offers possibilities for collaborations like with the other Institute. I think that's where maybe we need to do a better job at uh, creating more synergy uh, between different Institute within the university. But I think um, merge is is a solution that many people go down. It's not the best solution necessarily.
1: Yeah, so w- you would say that it's important to stay in these compartments and then maybe focus more on the interactions between those compartments.
2: Yeah, but the compartmental, shall we say, areas of interest, like, yeah, definitely, I think. And there might be scope for joint grants where different people bring slightly different expertises. And an obvious one that I've seen quite a lot while I was doing my PhD in Cambridge is kind of modelers coming together with uh, with developmental biologists or molecular biologists bringing the two disciplines uh, together. And those are a number of sort of um, uh, grants are actually focused on that. So, you know, we could have some of that rather than necessarily trying to put everybody in in a single gigantic institute, which also at a logistical level would be a nightmare to run. Believe me, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So I think smaller (laughs) can be a little bit more practical for a number of of contexts.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the merging of practicality and, again,
2: identity and, you know, it, and also, you know, it's not just about identity, but also sense of community is really important, especially for the early career researchers. I think I'm very, very proud that in the Institute of uh, Plant Molecular Biology, um, we have a lot of attention for the early career researchers. We have a, a close, unique community of them. We do loads of things together and we support each other in a number of aspects so it's it's, it's a very inclusive space and i'm, and I'm very pleased by it i think um a lot of the credit goes uh to and um, professor steven spoke was uh, the the previous head uh, head of institute that has really like pushed the agenda in that regard
1: i really liked what you said when we were talking about areas of interest and communicating between those for me that kind of started this vision, like seeing Mm -hmm. the university as a cell, (laughs) like if if the cell was just completely homogenous, if it didn't have the compartments or organelles, nothing would work, like you need these areas of focusing. But also the thing what a cell does is there's so much communication happening between those compartments. And I actually read your staff profile on the <laughs> <Gosh>. <laughs> Institute website. And you have this lovely paragraph when you write about what you research and what you're passionate about. A plant can be viewed as an organized community. Its members, the cells, are constantly exchanging nutrients and signals. Plant growth and development ultimately depend on these interactions. Small pores, called plasmodesmata, enable transport between neighbouring plant cells. Exchanges between students and educators are similarly essential. They enable reciprocal development. As a community of learners, we influence each other's view of the world. My teaching goal is to help students grow into the leaders of tomorrow. I hope they will use their scientific knowledge to best support the societies of the future.
2: I hope the the analogy was not to be labored in a way, but I I just, I just thought it was it was nice to try to kind of find a way to both link your research and teaching uh because you know again as we said at the start they it it they're not separate things they're really interlinked and in one thing into the other because obviously we bring. Uh, our own personal experiences and that's another important concept in kind of education you want to be bring your authentic self as an educator so you bring your own history of experiences a view of the world and you know if we didn't have that authenticity in there well then the concept could just be taught by a robot like speaking of artificial intelligence which is, is, is very trendy at the moment so I think the value of in-person education is really that, that you're dealing with a person that has baggage of experiences, some positives, some negatives, but they've sort of developed in response to that. And really, you can sort of have those important and sometimes challenging conversations as a result of that. I don't think you would be able to do that with a machine. So, you know, that, that's part of the value of us being here.
1: Yeah. What are some of the most maybe fruitful or rewarding interactions that you've ever had with a student
2: Um, I'm sort of not going to try to single out a a specific sort of uh, interaction. I'd say that in general, one of my favorite moments is when um, a student might have been struggling with a specific concept and, and, you know, they thought about it. And then you kind of start having a chat with them. You don't give them the answer. I think that's really important. Giving the answers kind of defeat the purpose of the learning a little bit. But maybe, you know, you guide them, you give a couple of hints and then eventually you can see it in their eyes that the penny drops, and, and they realize that. And, and you can also see the, the pride they've got in having reached like that, that final destination. And I think that, that's one of the reasons why we teach, like to see that sparkle in the eye of I got there. And it was my achievement, not, not sort of passed down to me.
1: So the role of the educator in school is different than the university, which we also touched on earlier is that at school the role of the educator is more of a stronger guide, I guess more hand-holding involved, and at university, would you say that it's the student's job to do most of the learning then?
2: Yeah, in a way, I, again, I'm, I'm not a fan of sort of oversimplification. And I, I, it's important really to say that there are some amazing educators in secondary education. That's why we get such fantastic students at university level. So I think they do a lot of, like, um, of work, um, so credit goes to them. Um, but yes, there's probably a little bit more of an element of sort of, handholding and guiding just because you know as as we grow we develop we develop our independence i think it would be unreasonable to have an expectation that you know a, a young kid would be able to to do lots of things on its own i feel when you reach university and if you decide uh, to attend university because it's not necessarily an obvious choice i think you know um, you could do you could do a number of different things rather than going to university so if you decide to go to university it's really because you want to explore something in detail and it has to come from you it shouldn't be just because you want a specific title, because the title these days, yes, it might get you into specific like jobs, but to be honest, there might be other routes these days. So it really has to be your your interest and your desire to explore something. So yes, I, I have a bit of an expectation that students would do a bit more of the legwork, or or you know if they do uh, that legwork, I think it's going to be more rewarding for them.
1: That makes sense. <laughs> So, as a final topic, you are very passionate about equality, diversity, and inclusion as a topic in teaching specifically. So, I saw on your Knitter, not Twitter, your Knitter profile, um, that you have written an open letter with scientists all over the UK to the Secretary of State for Science who at the recent conservative conference talked about quote-unquote kicking the woke ideology out of science where they referred to among others transgender identities so this has caused quite a stir in the scientific community um and i think it raises the question of should science be politically informed? And maybe should politics take science into account?
2: Okay, this, there's a lot to unpack uh, in that question. Uh, let's maybe start with the premise that, you know, here it is, is important to stress that I'll be speaking in a, in a personal capacity, not, not necessarily as a representative of the university. I mean, what we noticed in their speak, without going into the, the details, is that there were some very problematic statements, because they were not based on evidence or science for that matter. And we were quite disappointed and I would even push it to say kind of angered um, to see that these statements came from well, the current prime minister and the secretary of state for science of all things. You know, there's a certain expectation that if you're the secretary of state for science, you should have a a, a good grasp or, or at least be advised by people that and understand the science, so um, we, were, we were a bit worried um, once we saw that speech.
1: Maybe we can link the speech um, in the episode as well, if, if there's a way to still find uh, Yeah, I mean in, in
2: our letter there's a link to the original like statement, just so that everybody was able to make a fair judgment uh, of our response. Um, but yeah, I think we really felt that those statements were not representative of the scientific community, um, one of those statements was that this was in response to requests from the scientific community, and we really wanted to push back on on, on that one, among other things. Uh, and hopefully, you know, with the good number of signatures that we've collected, we really demonstrated that that was not the case. Uh, and we really wanted, among other things, to really affirm that uh, diversity in research and in other fields as well must be respected, protected, and really valued because there's. A lot of research showing that uh, more diverse teams uh, are more productive, they can make bigger achievement. It also creates a much nicer, uh, I would argue, environment for everybody to live in. So really seeing that a little bit belittled and and attacked, I think is very problematic, uh, if nothing else for the fact that it is legally enshrined that that protection. So it creates uh, well some quite concerning situations. Um, But yeah, so that was a little bit the motivation uh, for their response. Um, to your other question, you know, the the relative um, interaction between science and, um, and politics. Well, I would probably start from saying that the independence of the research community must be respected and is again enshrined in what is called the Haldane principle, which is, you know, uh, scientists are best placed to judge like, uh, the research, the direction of the research, I mean, to simplify it to the extreme the idea that you wouldn't want the politician to review a research grant, another scientist is probably better placed to yeah. kind of assess the, the value of the research. Yeah. So that's kind of, uh, in, in a nutshell, uh, very simplified what the Haldane Principle is. It was established in sort of uh, first two decades of the 1900s. Yeah, right? I mean,
1: it makes sense. Like, the scientific, you know, approach is... You know, scientists know best what that is and are trained in that, so...
2: Yeah, hopefully they're best placed to interpret, like, uh, the complexity of of life, for example, which is something that sometimes gets lost a little bit, uh, either in the news headlines, you know, we see that all the time, like, complexity doesn't make a good headline, as a simplified statement does, which is a big problem. Having said that, sort of, the independence of science... As, a, as I sort of said earlier, science is not built in a vacuum, okay? So I think there, is, there are reciprocal influences between uh, research and politics that can be either positive or problematic. Um, we shouldn't really forget the fact that a large proportion of the research that we do is publicly funded, so and that is you know, an obvious link, if you want so what we need to do is probably as scientists, we need to talk more to policymakers and really ensure that you know, the correct messages or the best available evidence is passed on and decision can be made on that. Again, to, to talk of um, current affairs, like the, the COVID inquiries is probably like a, a good example um, of that. And there are some lovely uh, pairing schemes run by some societies. I'm thinking about um, the Royal Society, for example, as a pairing scheme where a scientist is paired with, um, with an MP and they do sort of a, a couple of reciprocal visits and they try to learn from each other. Um, so I think viewing the scientists in an ivory tower is problematic because really creates a detachment from society, which is what we don't want for the students, we certainly don't want for the, for the academics. So we really need to engage with politics, policy, and also all sorts of other type of bodies and that, that there are stakeholders um, for what we do. But yeah, I think independence must be respected, but we shouldn't feel like we live in a, on the moon yeah. or, or, or on Mars.
1: Again, it's a communication, communication.
2: Absolutely. I think maybe we, we can sort of say there are some very good um, science communicators Um one of the the persons that I use as a model also for my teaching is actually Adam Rutherford. I've got a, I've got a book um, uh, of his um, with me. He is a very prolific writer, has received uh, a number of awards for his science communication. Uh, he's a lecturer uh, at UCL, um, London and really does a lot of that kind of um, linking genetics and evolution to society and really conveying that quite well. He has written books about eugenics and how to talk with a racist person, kind of explaining those concepts. This one that I've just finished and has actually inspired quite a lot of my lecture in this course is is a brief history of everyone who ever lived, which I think really delves in a lot of interesting complexity about where we come from, where we're headed and everything that happened in between.
1: Yeah, if you don't mind, we will also put the name of that book in the description of this episode. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I've, got, I've got all his books, so uh, I've, I've got a fair bit of reading to do about Great. it. It's sounds... somebody that I would really recommend.
1: Great, sounds like an author that every scientist should read. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Andrea. It was very enjoyable to have this chat with you.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. And um, I wish I could say that I look forward to hearing my voice, but um, I'm one of those people who just hate doing that. So I promise I'll listen to the podcast at least once. Uh, But uh, I think that will really be a bit of a a challenge for me. So thank you very much for having me. It has been a real pleasure.
1: No, same to you. See
2: you next time. See you
0: next time. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed the episode with Andrea and Anna and maybe got inspired to participate in science education or communication yourself, or at least understood what enormous importance our educators have. You can listen to other Biopod episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at BiopodEdinburgh. Otherwise, enjoy your day and see you next time.